Today, we get to talk about this student debt crisis and the $1.7 trillion in college loans 45 million Americans are carrying. You know, they say go big or go home. I think we need yeah. to cancel all of it. If my student loans were canceled, I would be able to teach in a school district that needs really effective teachers, but unfortunately does not have the salary schedules in place to actually pay a livable wage. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So on this episode, Nick, we're going to talk about debt. And and speaking of debt, I think that our listeners uh, owe a debt to us because we provide, uh, you provide, I should say, this podcast uh, for free. Uh, no subscription, no ads, just us talking straight through the half hour, 45 minutes. Right. And in return, all we ask is that you go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and rate and review us. It would be awesome if y'all did it. And we'll provide links in the show notes uh, in case you don't know how to do it. And thank you for that five-star review. Thank you. Uh, today, we get to talk about this student debt crisis that neoliberalism has wrought on uh, the country and the $1.7 trillion in college loans approximately 45 million Americans are currently uh, are currently carrying. And, and to be clear, it's, it's not just students who owe that debt, but also their parents through uh, sometimes some very high interest uh, right. loans. And now, you know, I couldn't be more excited about the conversations that are taking place around helping people get out from under that debt, which is a thing that the incoming Biden administration could do without the permission of a Republican Senate. And as a strategy for stimulating an economy in recession, uh, there probably aren't very many better opportunities. Right. And to be clear, a lot of people talk about this as a fairness issue, and I agree. Um, we pulled up the ladder behind us, Nick. Our generation uh, had the opportunity that you did to go to a very affordable public university and graduate with no debt. And we pulled that up and we have just, we've put all this debt on the shoulders of, right. of the younger generations. And that is tremendously unfair. And we did it at the same time that we were stagnating wages so that that college premium, while it still exists, you're, you're earning less than your parents did. That's right. But this isn't about fairness. This is about what's good for the economy. And it just isn't good for the economy to have people who should be starting families and starting businesses and buying homes not doing any of that because they are burdened under $1.7 trillion of student debt. That's right. And and who are likely to never get out from under it for, for most of them. And, and so- as a matter of stimulus and as a matter of, you know, finding simple, direct and profound ways to generate economic growth, nothing could be more efficient 
than effectively giving 45 million people a raise by eliminating their debt. And, you know, what's really exciting about this idea is that although only 45 million people would benefit directly from this, it would lift the economy generally for everyone. But, you know, also there are probably 90 million people who either depend on or love the 45 million people carrying this debt. And so the impacts of this would be really profound and would uh, affect, uh, you know, a huge number of citizens, both directly and indirectly in our country. And I mean, right. I just have to say that I know it sounds like a lot of money, $1.7 trillion in debt, like just giving that away, but we routinely do that in our country. <laughs> Yeah, we usually give it away to people Rich like people. you. Though. Right. Like we <laughs> yeah. routinely give trillions of dollars away, but almost always in tax cuts or tax subsidies to wealthy people or owners of capital. And right. the thing that's jarring about this is this is giving money away to people who do not have a lot <laughs> right. of wealth, but that's not a reason not to do it. But in addition to being progressive, I want to point out, it's also very centrist in the way that we talk about it. Right. This benefits the majority of Americans and it is broadly popular. Yeah. 53% of Republicans support a proposal to forgive $50,000 in debt for anyone earning under $125,000 a year, according to a poll from Data for Progress. So uh, to argue that this is some, you know, far left Bernie no. Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, socialist uh, fantasy just is not true. Yeah. This is majoritarian centrist as any policy could be. Absolutely. And today we get to talk to Feneba Addo, who is uh, the Lorna Jorgensen Went Associate Professor of Money Relationships Inequality uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Feneba researches uh, uh, the role of debt in increasing wealth inequality uh, within communities of color, among economically vulnerable populations, and across the course of life. Uh, it should be a really interesting conversation. I am Feneba Otto. I am an associate professor of consumer science in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I teach both undergrad and grad students everything from research methods to family policy and economic policy. And I'm currently working on a book with a co-author on racial disparities in student debt. Hopefully by the time the book is out, we'll have re reduced some of that debt. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Here's hoping. So uh, why don't we start by just uh, setting the table here, and if you could tell us first what the uh, student debt cancellation proposals look like, and uh, I guess also why we should be going there. Okay, so uh, there are quite a few proposals, right? And we saw quite a different, uh, especially during the election, several of the Democratic nominees pushing uh, different proposals on, um, I guess, different degrees of what their ideal student debt cancellation program would be. The Biden plan is um, proposing about a $10,000 debt cancellation for uh, individuals, who, obviously with student loan debt, um, that would phase out at an income of $125,000. And I believe his is only targeted towards public uh, universities. 
Um, but then we have something like the Warren and kind of uh, similar to the Bernie Sanders plan, which is about, uh, they were proposing $50,000 across the board. And then everything else is kind of falls in between that. And then at the, I guess you would say the other stream or the alternative offered up for people who are kind of anti student debt cancellation, um, who are proposing more along of the lines of kind of reforming the current system, and in particular, the policies that are um, related to the um, income-driven repayment plans, right? So this um, drive to get people into plans that would allow them to pay a portion or a proportion of their uh, disposable income or discretionary income towards paying off their debt. And then after, if they consistently make these payments over a certain amount of time, then they would have the rest of the debt forgiven. And so they run the gamut <laughs> of, of, of different types of policies that people are proposing, um, but really trying to address this student debt crisis that we all are experiencing or seeing right now, um, in which over $1.6 trillion in aggregate student loan debt held by approximately 45 million borrowers and you know, really trying to address the fact that there are such high default and delinquency rates and the student debt has increasingly, increasingly more evidence that it is having some um, negative consequences on people's decision-making in various areas of their life. Let's dive deeper into that. So who, who has student loans? In what way is it affecting different kinds of Americans? Right. So, um, you know, these include in students and their families who went to all types of institutions of higher education, right? So two-year, four-year, for-profit. So a lot of borrowers uh, attended for-profit universities. And then we also have individuals who have, you know, tend to have a lot of debt. So, you know, we're thinking uh, six-figure debts are largely concentrated among people who have graduate school debt, you know, from professional schools, um, such as, you know, doctors, lawyers, and so forth. But then we also have parents who took on loans for their children as well. So including yeah. the Parent Plus Loan Program. But now we can speak about like the different, where, where it's concentrated, right? So the actual uh, number of people who have over like $80,000 worth of debt is actually only held by about 10% of borrowers. And the, a lot of people with student loan debt actually have, at the, are concentrated towards the lower end of the student debt distribution. So below $20,000. A lot of the, the research that I have done has looked at racial disparities in student debt. There we find Black borrowers in particular have higher average loan balances. They tend to have accumulate more debt and then have you know, higher problems with default and delinquency with repayment in particular. So we see yeah. a disproportionate number of Black borrowers with student loan debt. And, and this is exacerbated, of course, by the huge racial disparity, not just in, in income, but even larger in uh, household wealth, so that the, the, the high amounts of debts uh, in, in black families uh, leaves you with a much larger debt to wealth ratio. Yes, absolutely. So a bunch of the work that I have been doing has been exploring the linkages between the racial wealth gap in our society and debt accumulation. So student debt accumulation in particular, as well as, you know, the next phase, which would be recreating or replicating the wealth gap because of high debt balances. So this is exactly what you're speaking to here. If parents don't have or if families don't have the money to pay directly for pay college costs, um, they take on debt. And because Black households disproportionately have lower wealth levels, so I can say, you know, based on data from the Survey of Consumer Finances, in 2016, Blacks had about 10% of median uh, wealth levels, so about $10,000 uh, to about 
$1,000 of the median white household of average wealth. But yes, so less resources to draw upon in order to help their themselves and their, and their children to pay for college and so forth, turning to credit markets to make up the difference. And then, we, you know, after they leave school and they have these large, large loan balances, we know that, you know, assistance from family and friends and your networks uh, doesn't end <laughs> once you finish. And so right. really seeing the inability to, to pay it off as quickly relative to their, to their white counterparts who have student loan debt as well. And I think that, you know, the student debt crisis is yet another manifestation of a 45-year wage suppression crisis. Because uh, for the bottom nine deciles of Americans, wages really haven't budged in 45 years, while both the necessity and the pressure and the cost of a college education, which theoretically was going to get you higher wages, exploded, right? And so you've got this insane discontinuity between what college costs and for most people, what, what the benefits are of getting that college degree. And so this whole thing is in this awful feedback loop, you know, this death spiral of increasing college costs and increasing debt costs and uh, flat wages. Yeah, absolutely. Very early on when people started to get alarmed about the rising aggregate debt you know, we saw a lot of uh, public figures, policymakers, and politicians saying, "Oh, I went to school, you know, twenty yeah. years ago, and yeah. I, you know, I only paid." It's fine. Dollars. It's fine. Yeah. It's not. You're <laughs> going to pay it off. It's going to be okay. But the magnitude, <laughs> like what you're speaking to, is very different. And the, and the economic circumstances and the economies that you know that students are leading into, you know, or, or have been entering, are very different. The circumstances that they are facing. Um, are very different than they were 20, 30 years ago. And so just trying to raise that awareness. And I think that the attention that this topic has received, both, you know, both media and as well with, within policy circles, is speaking to that realization finally seeping in uh, that you can't compare the magnitude of the, the debt burden. Yeah. Right. We've talked about this before, Nick, when, when you <laughs> entered the University of Washington, yeah. adjusted for inflation, tuition and fees were about $2,500 a year. Today, they're $12,000 a year. Right. <laughs> well, I, to be, I, I can't do the inflation math, but what I can tell you is what it really costs, and it costs $750 a year to go to the University of Washington. <laughs> you can do your divided buys and see pretty quickly the job at McDonald's for the summer would pay for that. Right. And and it did. And it did. did. So let's back up a little bit. And if you were in charge, what would you do? What would I do? Oh, what would your proposal be? (laughs) Yeah. So I think one of the things that I have been really trying to um, underscore is that we need more than one policy. Right. There there are many issues with the whole system. And I tend to say maybe a two pronged or at least two phases one that would address the accumulation of the debt, and then another that is going to address the repayment. A lot of the focus has been most recently on the repayment phase, just because we see such, you know, the outstanding balances and um, the huge, uh, the high default rates in particular. But, you know, just fixing the the repayment phase is, uh, without fixing or addressing the accumulation phase, is going to mean that this is just going to replicate itself, you know, with the next set of, of students. And thinking really about how we think about how we finance higher education. And if we're not going to address the rising costs associated with going, then how do we turn that loan aid into grants that 
people who cannot afford um, don't have to turn to credit markets in order to finance their education, I think is really what we want to think, start thinking about. There's a lot of debate. You know, I think that is, is rightfully so about who should bear the cost of higher education. And I can see the merits of those arguments as well. But where do we get to the point in which these, um, the costs are distorting, you know, decision-making, distorting behavior, distorting long-term planning for individuals. And I think that's really where we are now. We're living in the world of unintended consequences and worst case scenarios, <laughs> you know, of, 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 of a policy. And that really needs to be addressed. So there's $1.7 trillion worth of student debt. Mm-hmm. If you were President Biden, what proportion of that debt do you think we should forgive? You know, they say go big or go home. I think we need yeah. to cancel all of it. You know, we need to admit that the that the current system isn't working and that has failed many people. And this is a reflection back on us, you know, both policymakers and a society, that we um, need to fix something. And one of those fixes should be removing this debt. Yeah, I, I would say that Goldie and I are probably largely with you. You know, I think that the student debt crisis is a macroeconomic policy crisis related not to the cost of higher ed mostly, but to the, that, you know, the society basically made a promise to people about the value of, you know, taking down this debt and getting a college degree and then, you know, let people take, take on the debt, but didn't provide the income that would allow you to amortize that debt in a, you know, reasonable way. So as people have talked about uh, the technical term, this credentialization of our economy, where you now need a college degree to earn exactly what you used to earn without one. Yes. And that is forcing people into debt, basically to get the same income that their parents had without all this debt. And, you know, I think that, you know, from our perspective, the first order of business for governance in this moment of crisis and inequality is finding scalable ways to make a material impact on the lived experience and welfare of a huge number of people. And, you know, I fully acknowledge that there are Harvard MBAs out there who took down a bunch of debt and are now earning a million dollars a year on Wall Street who, you know, in fairness, don't need debt forgiveness. So maybe there's a way to get to 90% of the debt uh, or something, but... Let's address that directly. Um, If you could explain why even forgiving their debt, if we just forgave everybody's debt, you know, let's shoot down that critique that this would be a regressive policy that largely helps uh, high-income people. Well, why is that not true? The majority of the debt is held by... It's like 10% of the borrowers, right? So they have an enormous amount and they tend to be the people who had gone to graduate school. I think a lot of the times when you hear that argument about the policy being regressive with the largest benefits going to the highest earners, then it completely kind of does away with, then, then people want to move on and not talk about tax cancellation at all. But there are a lot of people who would be benefited by such a policy. So I think once people group in that, that group of people, then they say we can't do it. But it fails to recognize that you would be helping a whole lot more people yeah. who are struggling with the little bit amount of debt. So I I often get frustrated with that argument because it makes people want to shift away from the debt cancellation conversation when 
In fact, we know that so many more people, yes, the people, they have a little, little bit of loan balances, but some, the magnitude or you know, the multiplier right. effect would be greater for the people who are at the lower ends of the debt distribution. I will also say, you know, those, the higher earners, you know, they, if you want to go towards a public finance argument, you know, are going to pay higher taxes <laughs> based on, or, you know, going to pay taxes right. towards this. And so, you know, it, it comes back to the economy in many different ways. And debt relief, I think, is something that would benefit all households. Right. <laughs> Even if, if you no, have $100,000, no, sure. if you make $100,000 or if you make, you know, $10,000 a year, um, just having that money free up. And I, you know, I do a lot of this in my other research. I looked at debt in the families and households, how just receiving that relief allows yeah. additional choice, you know, um, allow, allows for longer term planning and, and so forth. You know, I think there are lots of factors that, that need to be focused on, you know, that, that are a part of this picture as to why individuals are struggling to, to pay their debt. And you just can't look at a number, right? And you have to look yeah. at their overall right. income to pay into it. You have to think of their wealth, you know, their wealth profiles, what is going on with their household balance sheet that is really contributing to the inability to pay that. And how do people, individuals or households prioritize debts, right? Because you may have other debts on your portfolio right. that you need to prioritize. Right. You know, a large one, a lot of people look at medical debt, for example, or, you know, credit card debt, which- That's right, or a car. Or a car, exactly. Or whatever. Exactly. You have said that canceling debt once isn't going to make the, the, the problem disappear. Do you have a high level perspective on how we should avoid this catastrophe in the future? Yeah. So I think we really need to think about how do we get resources, resources broadly defined, but money <laughs> to, to families and individuals so that they can make choices that will allow them not to turn to credit markets if they want to invest in their education, mm -hmm. invest in their future, right? So really thinking about how do we, you know, in, increase individuals' income? How do we help people they want to purchase a home? Um, really, you know, just thinking broader beyond, you know, quick, simple, short-term fixes and longer term, how do we invest in our society and our community to really build wealth you know, more generally, how do we raise up the wealth of communities and, and within our society so that turning to credit markets, turning to taking on debt in order to improve one's individual lot or your family's lot is um, no longer an option. So there's a question we ask all of our guests, which is, why do you do this work? I do this work because I, this is who I am, right? This is what I saw, I saw the both the returns to a college degree, both personally and within my family and in you know the um, neighborhoods around me, what a college degree could offer and the opportunities it could open up. I also have you know been on the receiving end of friends and partners for whom the debt collectors call every day, you know, trying to pay when there is no nothing to give, right? Yeah. So. This is personal, but this is also very highly important to me because I can see what how transformative both a college degree can be, but also how transformative receiving debt relief can also be. Yeah, you right. know, for, for individuals and their families. And it's interesting you 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 describe your experience with a laugh, but mm -hmm. it's incredibly stressful. <laughs> to, it's incredibly to... stressful. It's incredible. Yes, yes, and it's. I, I laugh because I'm on the other end. I, I honestly, like there is no other, there is no other reason for the laugh is that because I can look, reflect back 
on, you know, and I'm not sitting still in that space. I, there's nothing funny about it when you're in it, when you're dealing with that. Absolutely. Oh, just imagine how much better this country, how, how much better off this country would be if we relieved that stress on 45 million Americans. Yeah. Particularly at this moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, particularly at this moment, I agree. Absolutely. In this moment. And, you know, I will say that, you know, the fact that we saw during the CARES Act that it was included as something that needed to be stopped, you know, the, the payments on those stopped added additional awareness of the severity of this problem, you know, so I think it's pretty telling um, what we see, how, how our government reacts in times of crisis, know, you know, what they can, what they can and cannot do, what is possible, right? And I think that the fact that student debt was on the table raises awareness as to the, the importance of this, of this issue. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for all your work on this. And I hope we end up ruining your book by eliminating the crisis <laughs> before you get published. Sorry. <laughs> all right. I love it. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been a yeah, thank you so much. So Pitchfork Economics listeners, over 2,000 of you used our tool to send the RAND inequality report to your local representative. And you guys are so awesome for doing this. And so we'd love to try it again uh, for this. And it's the same drill. Go to civicaction.com slash debt or text debt to 67076. And just like with the RAND study, you'll be taken through some simple steps that will send an email to your elected leaders telling them why you want to support Biden's efforts to cancel student debt in his first 100 days in office. And we promise we won't sell your information to anyone. And I hope a lot of you will do that because I know it means a lot to you. And the reason I know that is for the last couple of weeks, we've been asking you what it would mean to you if student debt was canceled. And so here's what some of you said. Hi, uh, my name is Bobby Blue. I live in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. My two oldest girls recently moved out uh, on their own for the first time, and they, uh, they're struggling because of, you know, due to the hours and things being cut back because of COVID. If I didn't have student loans, I could help them pay their rent. Hello, I'm Peter. I'm from Utah. I've just finished off paying the student loans. My wife and I both had undergraduate degree loans and one graduate degree loan between us. And I feel a little bit of envy when I hear that uh, we might be canceling student debt. I'm also much more optimistic when I hear that uh, than any envy I feel. My name is Allie. I'm calling from Arlington, Virginia. Uh, if my student loan debt were canceled, I might be able to take seriously the prospect of having children. I am 34. I've accrued about $250,000 in student loan debt. Uh, comparatively, I'm very fortunate. I'm on an income-driven repayment plan, and my loans are all federal. And I went to law school like a lot of other people with high debt loads. I do not have the six-figure paycheck that people think comes with that. And as a result, I find myself approaching the end of my fertile years, to be quite honest, never feeling like I really have the choice to 
sit down and think about whether to become a mom. I know that people with student loan payments successfully have children and families, but my husband and I just don't see how that's possible right now. I'm an educator in Tacoma, Washington, and if my student loans were canceled, I would be able to teach in a school district that needs really effective teachers, but unfortunately does not have the pay structures in place, the salary schedules in place to actually pay a livable wage. Right now, uh, my student loans are $80,000. That is due to going back to school to get a master's in teaching, and that graduate degree has just made my student loan payments absolutely untenable. The only districts that actually provide decent salary schedules are in areas that, uh, frankly, have a lot of very effective teachers, and I would really like to work in a uh, more high-need school district, but unfortunately, with my student loan payments, uh, I'm not currently able to do that. I don't think it's a great model for our country that you have to go into so much debt to serve future generations, but that's where we are right now. Hey, this is Amy Watkins, and I'm calling from uh, the Dallas, Texas area. I have a business management and an MBA degrees that are both paid off, fortunately, because my parents started early in saving, but um, I'm 40 and have wiser uh, (laughs) insight into the fields that I wish I could be in. So right now I'm working at in an hourly part-time admin job, so I have time to volunteer in the fields that I actually want to do because if I went back to school now, any money that I'd be paying to student loans would be money that I wouldn't be putting into my retirement. So I'm looking at uh, cruising by, just paying the bills for the next 20 years at least, Um, not getting to do what I really love because, because of the student debt. You know, my mom had four degrees, and they worked through college, and I can't afford to do that. So this is what I'm doing instead. Hello. A big-time fan of your guys' work. Been listening for a while. First time calling in. You really caught me with your question about what would it mean to have your student loan debt canceled. You see, for me, uh, like a lot of people, I graduated into the Great Recession. When I graduated, there were no jobs. I had to leave the country in order to find work. What it would mean to me to have my student loan debt canceled would be that I'm allowed to, would know that I can come to America and take part in what has been the traditional prosperity that my parents enjoyed. My name is Suni. I'm calling from New York. And my opinion regarding student debt as somebody who has been paying student loans for close to 20 years is that I don't mind paying my loans. And I think it's great. We should pay it. My deal is I want to pay it once. Nobody told me that over the years, due to negative compounding, uh, my student loans will keep growing as I was paying it, and that eventually it will double, even triple. I had to go in forbearance a few times. I have a family now, and I actually have two kids going to college, so I haven't been able to pay as much as I thought I would. In the meantime, due to the interest, which I consolidated at 6%, every eight years, more or less, my student loans double. So at this moment, I have paid my loans maybe twice already because the original amount that I took out has doubled maybe one and a half times already. So 
maybe if there's a way that, yes, we'll pay back, I'll pay the principal, and maybe charge me one time this, the, the interest rate, that'll be right, that'll be okay. But in my case, I have already paid my loans a few times, and I think my debt should be canceled. Hi guys, I'm James, and I'm in the LA area, and if my student loan debt were canceled tomorrow, it honestly wouldn't change my life very much, because I'm in my 50s. On the other hand, at any point in the past, if it had happened, that would have improved my credit standing and my purchasing ability quite significantly, because I've been underemployed for a very long time, and... This has affected my ability to, whatever, buy a car that would get me to work or, you know, get a better apartment or anything like that. It's not just a matter of how much does that money affect you today, but how much it affects you in general. Feneba made a really good point, which is that we've got two problems. We've got the existing uh, student debt crisis, and we've got the one waiting for us over the next 30 years, right? <laughs> it, it will happen as a consequence of wages being low and tuition, uh, being, tuition high. being high. <laughs> and I acknowledge that there are two problems, but it doesn't mean that because we don't have a ready solution for the second one that we shouldn't address the first one. Right. And this is one of the things that's so exciting about uh, student debt forgiveness is that it's something the Biden administration can do without the Congress. Yeah. And that means... Right. Regardless of whether we get control, we win those Georgia seats, uh, there's still some conservative Democrats who won't support uh, eliminating the filibuster. So it's unlikely that anything big can get through Congress over the next couple of years. Correct. But in this case, it doesn't have to. Biden can do this on his own. And of course, he should. Yes, because it's both good policy. It would be great for the economy. And it's great politics. Yeah, it's stupendous politics. That's right. Uh, because as we said, this is a this is a centrist policy. It is good for the majority of Americans, and it is popular with the majority of Americans. Right. So why wouldn't you want to do that? Exactly. And and you know, doing things like that is what good governance is, and uh, doing more of that will lead not only more people to vote for Democrats, which would be a fine thing, but more particularly, more people to vote, more people to participate, more people to believe that the democracy has uh, has some connection to their welfare, which I think is super, super important because we have certainly taught people over the last 40 years that no matter who they uh, elect, nothing better will happen. Next week, we're revisiting an old favorite episode. Abigail Disney joins me to make the case on behalf of the rich for taxing us rich people more. And tax expert Chai Ching Huang takes us through the policy details. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.